0: Is up Bitcoiners. I just got off with Eric Yeakes. He is an awesome young person in the space and he dropped four fantastic articles on Bitcoin magazine, really kind of describing in a very analytical and easy to understand way why Bitcoin is important, how Bitcoin came to be, and why Bitcoin is the best money. Um, so he breaks down a lot of the key concept that maybe some of the Bitcoin curious out there haven't fully grasped. Um, but you know. These four part series can help people go from like, oh, I own some Bitcoin. I don't really get why it's important. Maybe Ethereum, maybe these other things could work to like, okay, Bitcoin is special. Bitcoin is different. Money is huge and Bitcoin is the best money. So Eric does a great job on this podcast. We just run through each article one through a time and we talk about uh, each one and break it down. Eric gives us commentary. I asked some follow up questions. I think it was a really great podcast. Again, you could use this as like, hey, your friends into Bitcoin, send them this podcast, give them the overview. Here's the four articles to go with it. If they spend two or three hours with this content, they're going to come out the other side knowing a lot more about Bitcoin with a lot more conviction and probably a lot more maximization. So uh, I highly recommend all of Eric's work. I highly recommend checking out this book. I highly recommend listening to this podcast and reading the four articles on Bitcoin Magazine. You can find all of that stuff in the show notes. Uh, but until then, Enjoy this podcast with Eric Yakes. Bitcoiners, I'm sitting across from Eric Yakes. Uh, I just spent several hours uh, going through his articles he published on Bitcoin Magazine. Just absolutely thorough and very, very well written breakdown of like what makes money useful and important why Bitcoin is the best money how Bitcoin works and how it fits into all of that Eric thank you so much for contributing to Bitcoin magazine such you know excellent work and welcome to the podcast
1: thanks man I'm I'm really excited to be here this is fun uh, I remember like it was like a year ago I was kind of like watching a lot of this content and I was like all right now I'm here today and it feels great I'm glad to be
0: talking to you you know, dude, the amazing thing about Bitcoin in the Bitcoin community is it's truly a meritocracy. And it's like, it doesn't matter who you are, where are you are from, if you're a NIM, if you're public facing, whatever. If you're putting out good work, it's just going to start bubbling to the top and Bitcoiners are going to start, you know, highlighting you and stuff like that. So it's amazing to see.
1: Yeah, like that. that's one of the coolest things about doing all this is like, you know, when I was starting off kind of like writing in this area, it's like, OK, like, look, you know, I believe in myself. I believe in the content that I'm writing. But I was like, it's probably going to be a while, particularly because I get kind of technical with a lot of what I'm talking about. It's probably going to be a while until, um, you know, it gets traction with somebody enough for them to be like, hey, like, you know, let's take a look at this. This is this is pretty valuable. Um, and then what's cool about the Bitcoin community is like it got traction way quicker than I thought it would. And um, a lot of people kind of see the value in some of the writing. And it's uh, yeah, it's totally a meritocracy. And that, that's one of the coolest things about it
0: all. So, Eric, let's just start off before we get into these uh, this article series they put together by like introducing the audience to yourself. Like you know who is Eric Yakes? How did you get into Bitcoin? and what was your journey like?
1: Yeah, yeah, totally. So um I started off. I was at this firm FTI Consulting, and we did corporate finance and restructuring work. So we were the largest restructuring firm in the world. So it's kind of like any sort of major bankruptcy um, or company that's like undergoing challenges. We were typically assisting them with some sort of like advisory from like a financial or operational or strategic perspective. And, um, I was, I was working in kind of like the tech and media group there. And it's, it's actually the same group that Parker Lewis used to work out of. And, um, And then I I was there for a few years and like my goal from college was to work for a private equity firm. And I kind of, uh, you know, I I earmarked that company because I get a lot of really good experience for that. And then I moved to a local Denver private equity company, it was uh, Lion Equity Partners and um, they were kind of a spinoff fund of Platinum Equity out of LA, which is this guy, Thomas Gores, who created this investment strategy of buying out corporate carve outs of larger enterprises. And that was a really successful strategy. And he ended up, uh, you know, buying the Detroit Pistons because of it. So they grew to be really large and they were only doing like really large size deals. And then a lot of funds kind of spun off. And, um, you know, one of them was the fund that I went to out of Denver and I was there for like a year and a half and kind of, you know, all the while when all this was going on, I had been reading about Bitcoin. I discovered Bitcoin in 2015 when I was like a senior in college. And I wrote it off. I was like, you know, this is speculative investment. Um, it's it's not worth anybody's time to like try to figure out what it's actually worth. And it was like that for like, you know, a year, year and a half. And then when I was back in my first firm FTI, I was talking to this guy who was my cube mate, and he was he was super into Bitcoin, he was super into the tech. And um, you know, he kept kind of digging into that and I would kept pushing it off. And then eventually I was like, all right, you know, I'll take I'll take a closer look at it. And I did. And once I started to hear about like the freedom aspect of Bitcoin, I was like, OK, this is pretty in line with a lot of the uh, you know, libertarian principles that I've maintained. I don't like to throw myself into like groups, but like, I, you know, that's probably the closest group I fall into. And, uh, you know, the first economics book I read was Capitalism and Freedom when I was like 18. And that kind of like defined a lot of my thinking. Um, and then eventually led me into a lot of the Austrian economists kind of away from some of the monetarists. Um, and, uh, yeah, once the freedom piece of Bitcoin clicked to me, I was like, okay, there's definitely something here. Um, and then it all started to, you know, just everything started to blossom out of that. And all the while I noticed I was spending a lot more time in, you know, hours after work, which wasn't all that much, but I was spending a lot more time just kind of learning about Bitcoin, trying to understand different aspects of it. and And I was just taking up a ton of time and I kind of hit this point in my career where I was like, okay, like, you know, I got to where I wanted to get to. And, um, and it wasn't that I didn't enjoy it. I did. It was really valuable experience. I enjoyed the job. I learned quite a bit there, but, um, I wasn't as passionate about it as I thought I would be. And then all of a sudden one day it kind of clicked for me and I was just like, dude, you spend all this time reading about Bitcoin and you know i would flirted with the idea before like oh like what if i went to go work in the industry or something like that but it always just seemed like kind of a crazy thing to me because you know i'd invested so much time into my career at that point making the actual jump over into this so I was like okay well that's a whole new skill set and yada yada um which actually you know i don't think is totally true in hindsight but um but that was one of the fears of doing it and then eventually i was just like you know what like i believe in this and uh and i think that you know, long term, if I'm going to do something that, you know, I feel like I'm proud of when I'm a lot older, it's going to be in this industry. And uh, so kind of towards the end of 2019, I decided to make the jump in this big leap of faith. Like, um, there's a few other career aspects, too, that I was interested in. Like, you know, coming out of the industry of private equity, there's not a lot of people who are like, you know, sitting on Twitter all day and doing podcasts and, um, you know, having these public forum debates. And that was something that I was super interested in. That's something that I kind of gravitate to. I like, I, I like the kind of media aspect side of business and I wasn't really getting a lot of that. So I was like, that was another driving factors. You know, I wanted to, I wanted to go and I wanted to tell this story about what's going on in financial markets, what's going on um, with this alternative system that we can opt into. And, uh, and I want to do that live and I want to be honest about it. And I don't want to have you know ulterior motives and try to, you know, create some sort of narrative that's gonna benefit whatever economic interests I personally maintain. Um, and you know, that's that that was a big vision. But then I was just like, I don't totally know what that is, but I just need to kind of jump into all of it. And and that's kind of what I did. And I was digging into first thing I was like, okay, I want to get deep into a bunch of different areas that I just really didn't have the time to. So I kind of went back and I read a bunch of different essays. I read a bunch of different books covering, you know, money and history and, um, you know, the origination of kind of our modern banking systems and then digging into central banking and you know, how, how central banking actually works and simplifying that process down in my head. Um, and that, that's that kind of like halfway through that. I was like, okay, um, I've scoured the internet. I've, uh, you know, read all these different books. And I'd say for most sources that I'm going to, you know, maybe 20, 20 to 30% of it really gets the majority of the point across. And um, I, I can summarize a lot of this stuff and tie a lot of this stuff together. And there's, there's kind of a book here. And I started off with just like writing essays. And then um, I was just like, no, like there's definitely a full cool story. And for people who are with my background who want like a very, very uh, defensible position on what, um, uh, you know, why Bitcoin's valuable. Uh, From a technical perspective and financial perspective, this is kind of the story that needs to be told and I didn't think it was being Told in a lot of the current literature. So I was like, all right, let's jump into this and I did it and then for the series um, You know, I was like, okay I think that you know a lot of that free content for Bitcoin magazine like I can I can take some of that and summarize that down even further for people who like You know want to spend 30 45 minutes or something just getting familiar with a lot of this.
0: Yeah, So uh, I we kind of discovered Bitcoin around the same time. We kind of graduated college around the same time. I think I graduated one year before you, Um, but I too like you know went from software sales to Bitcoin. And like as soon as I discovered Bitcoin, for me it was quick. It was like I could not bear being at work for yeah 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 and not do Bitcoin stuff. Uh, So it took about four months for me to like
1: good for you man
0: start like hedging hard and like stack and like, you know, filling up my bank account and just like putting in my two weeks. Um, but you know, I think it's really rewarding getting into Bitcoin. Right. And when your like, life is aligned with your work, um, and your interest in is aligned with like what you're doing every single Mm -hmm. day. Like, um, it's, it's kind of a powerful competitive advantage. Oh,
1: totally. Like, you know, it, it kind of around the time when I was thinking about, um, you know switching into this area it, it started with like i'd been grinding on this project for um uh it was like four or five months straight i you know was losing friends i was gaining weight and i was just like okay like is this is this all worth it do i care that much about this kind of stuff and um you know it definitely felt like work and now like over this past year all this kind of work that i've been putting into these areas um doesn't really feel like work i just get up and read about a bunch of stuff i want to read about and talk about stuff i want to talk about it's i, I think. The way i think about it is like from my perspective i think this is the most important problem in the world to be solved right now and that that's what makes me feel good about all this
0: yeah i mean fix the money fix the world it's not yeah. a uh uncommon saying amongst the bitcoin community and I, th- I think a lot of hardcore bitcoiners believe that um so eric let's dive into this four-part series you dropped on bitcoin magazine um cool. the first part I thought was absolutely fantastic, the dimensions of money. And in all of your articles, I highly recommend you guys check them out. All the links will be in the show notes. Um, You know, you have these great charts um, and you really kind of illustrate this stuff uh, in a very clean and understandable way. And then you kind of align like why Bitcoin makes sense as like the best. Um, in these cases, but like, let's talk about like the part one, the dimensions of money, like what were you trying to get out of this piece? Totally. Like, why is it important to talk about like money more holistically before you even talk about Bitcoin?
1: Yeah. So, um, that, that was the first thing that was pretty easy for me to figure out with all this. A lot of the other areas, it's kind of like what comes first, what comes later, how, what's the right order for all But the understanding just like this fundamental theory of money, that's, I think that's the first thing anybody should read about if you're getting into Bitcoin. Um, what i found really quickly through reading is i was like okay you know i assumed always that there was some sort of resource that was kind of like aggregating and synthesizing a lot of these principles but you hear a lot of people talk about monetary properties you'll hear other people talk about monetary functions you'll you know read the bitcoin standard and he'll talk about uh the most saleable good and how that exists across three different dimensions and um And I was like, okay, how do I tie all that together? Because it's all existing on the same topic, but it's these different things that people are talking about. And I'd always hear people kind of mixing them up and um, talking about them in different ways. And I was like, there needs to be kind of a cohesive framework for discussing a lot of that. So that was the first thing is I was like, I need to organize a lot of that together. Um, The other big part of the essay, or uh, yeah, the article is... um, Kind of making a distinction for people apparent between market value and monetary value. Um, you know, it's actually pretty timely because I, I was just reading this week through Taleb's finalized paper on Bitcoin, and um, and he really focuses on that distinction. And I think he conflates it in a variety of different ways. And I think it's really important for people in a financial background to kind of get their head around this point too, um, so that you don't make similar mistakes or at least, you know, have the right perspective to understand that value. Um, But being able to define that difference, uh, from saying, okay, we use a lot of these financial models to say like, here's what value is. And we have a lot of really solid theory behind all those things. What hasn't happened in millennia is a new emergence of a monetary good. So nobody's ever really talked about monetary value. Like when I was in college, um, I think it was, you know, there's like a cursory review in one chapter at one and then we kind of moved on. So here's what money is. We all know that we all agree. Let's move on. And, but now everybody's starting to question that again and a lot of people are taking this market value framework and they're applying it to bitcoin and i'd say like a lot of these og really smart finance guys have been doing that for a long time and finally they're coming around to things but i think it would save a lot of people a lot of time if out the gate they're just like okay there's a difference between market value and monetary value market value you assess by some type of model that discounts future cash flows of an asset which by the way is speculative um, but we won't go there into the theory of all that but um from a monetary perspective you have to break it down property by property and say okay what makes something good money um, because money facilitates the process of trade between things that have market value so like what's confusing about money to a lot of people is that there's like this implicit cost in a transaction whereas like when i go so here, here here's an example you know i go buy a cup of coffee and there's an explicit cost I can be like okay this cost me four dollars and um with trade you don't directly understand what that implicit cost is. Um, there's, uh, you know, when you when you're transacting, if you, the best way to look at it is from extremes. So, like if you look at a barter economy, um, there's a lot of time and effort that is lost from not having a monetary medium to conduct that trade. But um, when you introduce a monetary medium and you go through a process of indirect trade by doing that. Um, that makes trade much more efficient and thus the time and effort that is needed to make that happen is reduced so that that's the value gained right there is the reduction of the cost of moving assets around and um that's not explicit so it's harder for people to understand because you have to think about it from where where is it implicit and um bitcoin bitcoin does that better than any other asset well not yet but the vision that i have for bitcoin is that it'll do that better than any other, any other asset one day um so those those two uh, those are kind of the two primary points that I wanted to get across in that article. and um, and then lastly, just kind of showing like at a very, very, very high level, you know, here are kind of the primary um, evolutions of money that occurred throughout history. Here's kind of how the monetary properties of those changed and compared over time, and why we ultimately were adopting new forms of money. And um, one thing that wasn't really being captured, kind of in that framework of the six monetary properties was with, you know, each step of the monetary evolution, we are like, okay, here's a better form of money. It's much more efficient for trade. Um, And we're going to adopt the benefits of that form of money. But with, um, but although it's efficient, we have to trust somebody else to, uh, you know, facilitate that process, which, you know, in, in hindsight, it's easy for us to say why that, that might be bad. But, um, you know, back then it was just people being like, oh, this this, this money's a lot better. And it, and it worked for quite a while. And it's still, you know, it, it's not to say that it was some sort of horrible system. It's just now we're kind of more out of hand. Um, but with that trade of trust and efficiency, um, that. That started to accumulate over time, and there is an agency problem that exists within money. And what I argue for is that um, the the agency problem is, you know, for for those who haven't heard that um, fundamental economics uh, um, theory that uh, you know when you have a principal and an agent that are designed where the principal is asking the agent to do something on behalf of them. If there is a conflict of interest between the two, then the agent will take advantage of the principal um, in some sort of way. And that results in moral hazard. And whatever moral hazard comes from that, um, we have tried over time to design systems to mitigate that moral hazard. And um, you know, a, a great example we're all familiar with is uh, balance of powers in our democracy. They're, when you have a principal society you have an agent government, and you elect them to do something on behalf of you, but they have a conflict of interest, aka they want more power over you. Um, then we need to create some type of system that, although it's a lot less efficient than like a totalitarian dictatorship, um, mitigates the risk of that moral hazard coming through. And um, and we've div- you can see that in a variety of different areas. But what but what I argue for is that money is the most salable good, meaning it's the most desirable good anybody would trade something for money quickly because it's, it's the good that you know you can immediately trade and it won't lose value. Um, and um, because it's the most saleable good, it is more subject to moral hazard than any other good. Um, at least is what I argue for. And um, so that, that, that's kind of another big piece that I wanted to get across as you see this uh, you know evolution of money over time and this trade of trust for efficiency. And, you know, we have a lot of trust in the system now. It's the most centralized system in 4,000 years of financial history. And um, there's quite a bit of moral hazard that comes from that.
0: All right, let's take a quick break from that episode. I want to tell you guys about our sponsor. It is Bitcoin 2022 conference. I am sure you saw the videos. You may have been there in person. Bitcoin 2021 was an absolute smashing success. It was the biggest conference in Bitcoin history crypto history, whatever history of the digital asset sphere, Bitcoin is number one in the Bitcoin 2021 conference is number one with a bullet. It was an absolutely incredible time. I was working my ass off the whole time, but I got to meet so many incredible community members. And I think the best testament to how amazing Bitcoin 2021 was, was not just all of the amazing, you know, accolades and, uh, and compliments that I got personally and our team got, But also, it's the skin in the game in Bitcoin 2022. We have already sold close to 1,500 tickets. That is more than 10% of the people, everyone who went to Bitcoin 2021 have already purchased tickets to Bitcoin 2022. We have not released a date. We have not released a city. We have not released anything. That is the biggest compliment. That is the biggest skin in the game of the community being down for this conference. Bitcoin 2022 is going to be bigger than Bitcoin 2021. It's going to be better than Bitcoin 21 in every single way. And we are going to be bringing you the best opportunity to mingle with the biggest, the baddest, the most Bitcoin people on the planet. So join the revolution. Go to b.tc forward slash conference. Get your tickets today. I don't know what the ticket prices are. They are going up. I think they're $249 right now. We just rolled out Fiat ticket uh, purchases. All the tickets purchased before today were all purchased in BTC. So get it, guys. Get it. Get this ticket. Be at Bitcoin 2022. See you there. Bitcoiners, I want to tell you guys about the Deep Dive. The Deep Dive is a new premium newsletter from the Bitcoin Magazine team in conjunction with my man, BTCization, Dylan LeClaire. Dylan is such a multifaceted and wide ranging analyst. He does everything from on-chain analytics to macro uh, analysis to uh, you know, hash rate and all that kind of good stuff. He does it all. He breaks down everything that's happening every single day with his daily dive. He's gonna dive into what is happening in the market that day so that way you don't have to pay attention to Twitter. You don't have to pay attention to anything else. You can just pay attention to the deep dive and he has you covered. And at the end of the week, guess what? You get a weekly recap. And at the end of the month, hey, we have a freaking report, a beautiful PDF breaking down all the activity of that entire month, what it means for Bitcoin, what you can expect moving forward. The Bitcoin market is going to moon. We are here to make sure that we maximize your stack. Go to members.bitcoinmagazine.com to sign up today. And if you use promo code BITS, you can get one month for free. So again, the deep dive, I've been checking it out every day and you should too. Back to the show. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, um, I've had a lot of conversations kind of around uh, banking and why banking kind of makes sense. And kind Mm. of in my mind, you know, this is kind of how it goes. is like banking was a technical solution to enable gold to scale better um, Mm. and to uh, solve some of the custodial and security issues that Mm. uh, kind of involve gold. Um, Mm. And um, ultimately, you know, as that power kind of centralized and trust in those institutions kind of compounded, uh, mm-hmm. that presented the opportunity in the '70s to close a gold window. You know, obviously, there's a lot of history between then and there to centralize power all the way into mm-hmm. just the U.S. to have that mm-hmm. power to do that in the be- in the first place. Um, and then following that, like the internet was the final nail in the coffin because gold just could not compete on the internet, and it was only fiat on the internet. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, fiat became ubiquitous because of that, um, as well as, you know, the other internet-based assets. Um, right. So that's kind of like my mental model for why now Bitcoin entering as like sound money on the internet is is like kind of bringing back the balance um, right. and, and bringing back some sort of like decentralized sound store of value uh, mm-hmm. into the, the the digital sphere.
1: Totally, totally, um, and I, uh, yeah, you know, I kind of break that down, and there's decentralized production of money and decentralized storage of money, and yeah, the production was when started to centralize when governments started to take it over, and uh, and then the storage was also, it, you know, and actually when you go to. Uh, I agree with you that like banking emerged as kind of like a technical solution. But when you go back to like 17th century England, where a lot of, uh, the, you know, the framework for us banking is built off of that model. Um, it's really interesting how it first emerged. I mean, when people were first storing money, well, you know, in antiquity, money was pretty much decentralized in every way. People created it themselves. They stored it themselves. They verified it between each other themselves. Um, but once we, uh, People started to accumulate enough wealth. They were storing a lot of their wealth in monasteries and government mints for a while. And uh, Charles I in England, he ended up appropriating a lot of wealth that was stored in the government mint. So these, the foundations of our modern banking system, uh, our modern private banking system, were coming from when that appropriation occurred and then a bunch of people got scared and they all took their money out. And they all started to move it into the vaults of these goldsmith bankers who um, were just the guys that were smithing a lot of different, you know, the gold ingots for different reasons. And they had a bunch of capacities set up for that. And like, that's how a lot of our modern banking system came from is people were trying to hide their wealth from the government. And um, and then when they started to develop that, it it gets even kind of crazier because um, fractional reserve banking in that system also kind of emerged not from just the perspective that the Goldsmith bankers could benefit from that system, but also there was a benefit to individuals from a fractional reserve because when you have multiple claims on the same money, um, they thought that that protected them in a similar way um, is kind of like how modern trust schemes protect assets. So like when you throw an asset into a trust, it kind of exists in this limbo where it's like, well, you know, I don't totally own it. And the, the trustee doesn't totally own it. The beneficiary doesn't totally own it. Um, it, it just is kind of in this limbo zone. And when they were creating a bunch of claims on the same amount of money in their vaults, they were gaining certainty that the government wouldn't appropriate it from those vaults in some form because there's so much more damage that could be done to the economy because of how they expanded the, you know, the amount of money through that process, which is really interesting because it was a defense strategy for a while. And then, you notice know, this became kind of commonplace. Um, and then central banks were used to plug the hole from those, uh, you know, booms and busts. But, um, but yeah.
0: Yeah, that, I mean, again, to bring it back to the, the series, like one of the things I love about all of the parts is the historical context, uh, especially part two, where you kind of go into the historical context of Bitcoin and like the process to get from, let's just call it general cryptography to like. Uh, you know, a distributed monetary system that works. You know, people mm-hmm. think that Bitcoin is the first uh, cryptocurrency implementation, but right. really, like there's many before it uh, mm-hmm. that kind of like were on this uh, path of failure until Bitcoin finally got all the all the pieces right. And then after that, you know the, the altcoins could just you know command uh, command v command or sorry, command c command v, uh, the right, right. magic formula and 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 just duplicate the. Magic that Bitcoin kind of hit the first time, but um, it, it was a struggle to like figure out how to do it, uh, you know, how to like get the certain properties right so that way the distributed systems game theory would work,
1: right? Right, yeah. I mean, incredibly complex, um, built through this aggregation of you know failure over time and many very valuable discoveries that were made from a lot of that failure, and um, and I mean. I think just providing that perspective to people initially too, solves a lot of questions in their mind of like, oh, this is some sort of crazy thing that a bunch of like, you know, internet nerds created. Providing that history of like, no, very sophisticated people um, who were, you know, incredibly intelligent and innovating in the space of public key, using public key cryptography to innovate in a variety of different ways. Had a fundamental goal for this vision of the future and and that's the other big pieces. This was a fundamental goal um, to have uh, You can't have an online economy where people can organize Without a way to move economic value peer-to-peer if you you know with the cypherpunk manifesto it's like if we were going to move money or if we were going to organize and uh, Create this type of freedom platform for what the internet should be as an enabler of freedom then um, then we need to be able to organize, which means we need to be able to transact economic value between one another. And that was, that was a very fundamental goal of what these guys were going for, because it's kind of like, without this, nothing. And, um, and yeah, it, it's, uh, it's, it's an amazing story.
0: Yeah, I think we can jump into the story a little bit. Um, there's a piece by uh, Der Gigi that also kind of had the same essence of, of your part two, uh, but really diving into like the history of uh, of you know all of these previous Bitcoin projects and how they led to Bitcoin B money uh, B gold uh, it was yeah I think B um, gold or Bit Gold yeah Bit Gold by Zabo, yeah. um, you know uh, David Chom's company you know several other uh, mm-hmm. iterations around trying to make this happen uh, um, reusable proof of work hashcash it all kind of comes all together into into Bitcoin.
1: Right. Right. Um, yeah, I think that, you know, David, Chom was kind of the, um, you know, he, he he was the, he was the founder of a lot of these ideas and, um, you know, Chom was putting together the idea of, uh, you know, digital signatures and that, that was the key piece to allow people to, um, well, you know, public key photography allowed people to prove that they, um, they are, that they have knowledge of their private key with, uh, without actually revealing that private key. And um, and one of the ways that a friend of mine told me is a good way to explain that without getting into the math, which by the way, like I, I dug into that math in a Jimmy Song's programming Bitcoin book. And if you really want to get deep, like that's fine. Guess. But you can just like Google it on Wikipedia too. Um, but the ECBSA uh, elliptic curve math that goes in behind this is, it's kind of fun to like really figure out how it all works. But, um, but anyways, it's kind of like if you give me a, bucket of pink paint, then I know that you had white paint and red paint to create that pink paint. I don't know how much of each, but I know that that existed. And that's kind of like how um, it's analogous to a way that we use math to prove that we have knowledge of a private key without actually revealing that private key. Um, and uh, and then, you know, David Chom used that, but a lot of his innovation for the company was DigiCash. Um, and the his innovation was dependent upon a third-party server um, that needed to be trusted. And another big piece was... Um, uh, and uh, there's, there's a book by some of the professors at Princeton. They kind of go into this detail pretty well. Um, but, you know, another big piece was they were trying to fix the value of the money to some sort of exchange rate, whereas Bitcoin was trying to bootstrap that value um, purely from the market, um, which was a monumental feat. That was something that was incredibly hard to do, and that's why most people who were creating these early forms of digital cash were avoiding that problem. And they're trying to have some sort of fixed exchange rate that they were going off of to strap it. Um, yeah, so like, you know, Chom kind of had like the fundamental piece together. And then, um, you know, the other big, big piece was when, and th- these things all kind of occurred at a similar time, but, uh, you know, Adam Back solved the need of digital scarcity. And, um, you know, by using, the, that one of the properties of software that is, and that's that's also interesting. That, that was a that was an issue that was specific to the internet that emerged. It's like if we want to create money on the internet, well, money needs to have a property of scarcity, and um, software is infinitely replicable. So because the uh, um, because of that, then anybody can just like copy bits and turn them into more bits, and um, we need to find a way to make that scarce. And that was one of the key. Problems that Adam Back's discovery of hashcash solved was creating a digital scarcity by um, finding math problems that are hard for computers to solve and requiring you to solve those math problems to create something. And that that was uh, that was another big fundamental piece. And um, and then you know like there was uh, the blockchain, which was um, it was in this paper. Uh, I forget the first name of it, this guy, Stornetta, and like that was something older in the '90s, just for like database structure. And then they used that. Um, to say, okay, if we use that and then Ralph Merkel's Merkle trees, um, we can uh, we can create a really efficient way of creating this public ledger that these transactions can go on and we can keep them scarce and we can put them on a public ledger in a way that's very efficient to verify. I feel like That's probably the most fundamental piece of it all is it um, allows people in a very efficient way to verify transactions. And, um, and then Satoshi was the one who kind of brought it all together um, in a practical sense, at least. Um, and, uh, and he solved the problem with consensus, which was probably, I mean, it, that, that, I think that's like the hardest step is figuring out how to tie all the things together and have all the incentives aligned correctly. Um, it, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's unbelievable. Every time I like think through it, every time I'm just like, um, what kind of a mind it takes to actually pull something like that off. But, um, but yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, it, it really is like putting all these random pieces together to make the system finally work. And mm-hmm. a lot of people were like knocking on the door, right? With mm. these papers, but no one really put put it into action. And Satoshi is the one who really kind of solved the problem with like, okay, we can use this blockchain database structure to solve the centralized uh, account uh, server or servers um, mm. and decentralize that by making it so everyone has the ledger. And then mm. on the flip side, he also solved the like, uh, the the problem with having a centralized issuer of money um, by decentralizing that using proof of work and the difficulty adjustment. And that was like, is it, I feel like, again, all of it was kind of a mishmash of existing stuff, but the difficulty adjustment seems like something that was very unique to totally. Bitcoin only. And yep. uh, again, that's something that is really uh, misunderstood. And today, mm. you know, kind of going through this crazy downward difficulty period with the migration of hash, from mm-hmm. uh, from China, it seems like um, you know it's it's amazing to see the difficulty adjustment coming in, and it's going to restore order um, uh, right, you know, right, very soon, right, right.
1: Yeah, the the uh, the difficulty adjustment piece is cool because it just turns into this market dynamic. We have um, it's kind of like we have both sides of the market put together with that adjustment, and it allows that equilibrium to be found. And then you know, having the foresight to. Uh, um, had that adjustment set up so that it doesn't create um, too much. Um, what's the word? Craziness in the system and reduces the amount of um, you know large scale changes. I think um, was 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 a really smart way. A lot of the things that they structured um, with how frequently it would adjust, and um, <laughs> it's funny i been making jokes on Twitter about the twenty five percent versus seventy five percent downward adjustment. Um, but 75% is That's that's pretty big. Um, but I, I wasn't even aware that there was a maximum on any of that until like a week ago. Um, but, uh, but no, it was structured in a way that was very conservative. And it's cool that a lot of those little details like that um, worked out as well as they did.
0: Before we get back to the episode, I want to tell you guys about Bitcoin Magazine. Bitcoin Magazine is the oldest publication covering Bitcoin. And we've been covering Bitcoin since 2012. Y'all, I'm so proud to be working for Bitcoin Magazine. We spend all day trying to scour the internet for the top news, the top plebs, the top subjects, conversations, everything that has to do with BTC, the asset, BTC, the culture, BTC, the revolution. We are here for it. We are here for BTC and BTC only. And we want to give back to the Bitcoin community. Hit us up if you want to contribute. And uh, yeah, go follow us on Twitter. Go uh, subscribe to this podcast. Go follow us on YouTube. All of the places that you can find Bitcoin magazine. We are there. Instagram, Reddit, everywhere. We're there. We're there. Follow us for the best Bitcoin knowledge. Back to the episode. Yeah, I mean, again, um, it seems like there was a there were some ideas put into practice, some ideas that didn't get put into practice, but it was really incredible mm-hmm. to see that. like Satoshi solved a lot of these fundamental issues, put it into. Um, action and actually created a network. And then, you know, even in the early stages, like his big challenge was convincing all of the skeptics that Bitcoin actually worked, that it solved right. the Byzantine general problem, that it solved the production of money problem, that it solved the centralization problem with uh, verifying all the accounts and the supply and all that mm-hmm. stuff that, you know, all these guys were working on for so long. Um, I think this is a good place to transition into part three the fundamentals of how Bitcoin works. You know, I think this weaves really well into like, okay, so how does Bitcoin solve these problems that these guys have been working on forever?
1: Right. Yeah. Um, and you know, going back to it, it creates all the right incentives for people. And the incentives are aligned so that uh, you know, it's to the benefit of the network and it incentivizes the network to continually grow and become more secure and more and thus more valuable to people. And um, you know, I kind of start that off. I think that like one of the big things that most people I would talk to couldn't really get their head around is just like, you know, what is a decentralized software and just breaking that down into like really simple terms and saying, okay, well, you know, decentralized software, it's like when you have a, when you have a company that um, is, you know, with a the CEO, they have a data center and the data center has these computers that have memory and processing power that are used to serve the functions that the company is providing to other people. And with decentralized software, it requires that same infrastructure, but it's done so that everybody can do that themselves. And all those, you know, if there's a thousand servers in a data center, then you can take that. And if you have the right incentives in your network, you can have a thousand people with their own server all working together to ensure that that same product is produced um, for all of them to use just because they're incentivized to do so. Um, and yeah, that uh, when you add in the piece of money to create those incentives, um, then you can actually have people work on code that creates this type of decentralized software that performs the same functions as like a centralized company could. And um, it, it just kind of like breaking down that foundation, I think, is important. And then the other big thing, too, that I was kind of confused on for a while when I was getting into Bitcoin is just like, what is a node? Is a wallet a node? Is um, you know miners or nodes, but like are they kind of nodes or not quite nodes? And then you know I put together um, this like graphic that's just like okay, like you have these two like primary constraints of like you know memory and processing power, and um, and what every everything that participates on the Bitcoin network and has a Bitcoin software is like a node in some form, but uh, depending on how much memory you have and depending on how much processing power you have determines what functions you can fulfill between routing, their routing transactions, when you hear about them, you tell them to other people, if you, um, and then verifying them so that you're certain you wanna tell them to other people. And then uh, and then the mining function, the for blocks. And like, those are kind of the three things going on in the network. And, um, you know, depending on how much memory and processing power you have will determine whether or not, um, you know, how you can participate in the network. So like kind of breaking that down, um, and then, you know, moving, moving away from that, uh, you know, I kind of, I, I dig into just like, here's the, you know, here's the technical explanation of how the mining process works that would really, really get me there. And I think for a lot of people, uh, you know, whenever I talk to somebody in finance and like, okay, so like, what's this math problem they're doing? Um, the quick thing I go to is like, okay, if you've ever done a goal seek in Microsoft Excel, it's like the same thing, just like you know, it's bigger, it's really, really massive numbers. And there's a lot of nuances to all that, but at a fundamental level, they're just trying to goal seek into an answer. And the goal seek in Excel takes a lot of time to go because Excel has to run through a bunch of iterations to find the right answer. And that's all these guys are doing is they're just running through a bunch of guesses. And when you use large enough numbers, um, you can, you can adjust like how, how hard that actually is to do. And, um, and you know, getting into the mining process and kind of just breaking down how that process works is really important. Um, and that you know, once you once you find that solution, that uh, you know that 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 block is ultimately communicated to the rest of the network, and people determine whether or not they want to accept it into their version of the blockchain based on if it passes their own personal verification. So at every step, everything's getting verified, and um, and then good transactions get into the blockchain. And um, and then lastly, you know, I kind of I get into the longest chain rule, um, helping people just kind of understand uh, network propagation and like, you know, how these transactions move through like a gossip protocol where everybody links up to a few nodes around them and uh, communicates everything that they hear on their node to all the nodes around them. And then those nodes are doing the same thing. And, um, you know, and then th- there's a paper that has said, you know, within like a 95% Statistical probability that it'll take about forty seconds for uh, um, for the majority, or for about ninety five percent of the network, to hear about it, and um, and that's really cool how that how the network can just communicate information so rapidly through a system like that, and um, and once you kind of understand that everybody's just gossiping to everybody on the network, and that's how information passes, and because they're computers, they can pass that information really quick. They're like okay, that that is a really good mechanism for. Um, for information to be moved around, as long as the majority of a really large percentage of people are pretty much hearing about it all the time, then like that's a really good way for information to be moved around, and that makes sense how it would work. And then you know if we follow the longest chain rule, um, that's that that's a key point of security for people to ensure that um, um, you know no bad actors who attempt to take the majority of the network over and, and put fraudulent transactions are really going you know, to be able to get there. And that, that, that was kind of like also one of the last like really key things to that rule that uh, Satoshi put in um, that aligns a lot of the incentives that we want. But yeah, um, and I think, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's pretty much, oh, and then the other thing too, that I cover in that is uh, kind of the rules of Bitcoin and um, I, I put together this graphic of just like defining like, Hey, here's kind of like the most important rules all in one place. Um, that, you know, if you, if you want to understand the rules of Bitcoin, then you can read the code, but kind of summarizing a lot of the most important ones for people into something and being like, here's the primary rules that you should be concerned about that Bitcoin's following. Um, and then comparing that to our fiat system and being like, here's a, you know, board of seven people that, uh, and they decide the rules. And, um, and then that makes it, you know, it's a pretty stark contrast to
0: consider. Yeah, rules, not rulers, right? That is kind right. of like a key concept in why Bitcoin. Um, so another key concept is the fact that just Bitcoin is better money, right? Like Bitcoin is better money on the internet. Um, and then in part four, you talk about the properties of money and Bitcoin, and, you know, why Bitcoin is so superior across a lot of these properties that you point out. I think we can just go property by property and, you know, break it down, talk about yeah. competitors and, and where Bitcoin stacks up.
1: Yeah. yeah. So so before we get into that, there's one key thing that I want to call out, because I, I think it is really important to say this. But like Bitcoin isn't there yet. Um, the Bitcoin needs an ecosystem around it. And. um and that ecosystem is being built, and I think there's a lot of people working hard to build that. I think it needs a lot more people working hard to build that, because if we want Bitcoin to be competitive with uh, the incumbent systems to the degree to where, you know, if the goal is hyper-Bitcoinization, then we have a lot of work to do. And um, I think that more time and energy needs to be spent on building things that will make Bitcoin have a higher utility from an enabling ecosystem. And um and I kind of get into just like, here's here's how that all works. And, you know, that's a very common area that, um, uh, you know, you'll see all the time, these people who have these criticisms of Bitcoin essays, and then they will say, here's what's wrong with Bitcoin. And they're talking about the settlement layer. And it's like, okay, well, you know, I can make all those same arguments about the ACH banking payment system and fiat too. It's like, you guys have a bunch of other payment mechanisms that make that work. So like, it, it's this apples to orange comparison that just happens over and over again. And you really need to define like, okay. Bitcoin is like a banking settlement layer with the way that it functions. Going to have enabling, you know, payment services and financial services that allow it to um, uh, ultimately compete with the fiat monetary banking systems that we have today. And um, uh, and I think I think that's that's an important distinction that uh, that needs to be covered. And once you kind of get that, you're like, okay, like here's high level like how the Lightning Network works. And you know, that's definitely not there yet. That needs quite a bit of work to be done. Um, and then also that uh, third-party intermediaries are going to be used in some sort of way. I mean, it's going to be it's going to be great to have uh, you know as many people who maintain self custody and understand things for themselves. Um, I think there's going to be a variety of different resources that people use to operate in this ecosystem, and that's all good. Um, and I also think this is kind of a side note that I don't talk about. I think people that find in the same way that Satoshi found a way to decentralize money, I think people that find ways to create decentralized hierarchies within financial mediaries of this enabling system are going to extract or they're going to um, they're going to build a ton of value for Bitcoin so that this whole idea of oh a third party intermediary system, we don't want to centralize too much into, you know, a company uh, in some sort of custody, which I agree with, but we need to innovate our way through that because the consumer doesn't care that much. Um, the consumer just wants utility in, in a lot of different ways. And um, well, I, I,
0: if, if I could jump in, I would just say yeah. that Bitcoin is a completely neutral substrate for mm-hmm. the best solution to arise upon. And that substrate mm-hmm. is neutral because it's decentralized and sound. So, mm-hmm. like, you know, a bank is not going to grow to too big to fail on the Bitcoin substrate. Like, right. It. <laughs> it if it collapses, it collapses. No one's going to bail it out. Those bitcoins are there. They're not there, you know. And if you want a fractional reserve, you fractional reserve. But if you uh, go out of business, you know, that's that. You know, you got to face that. You know, there's outbreak. no bailout.
1: Yeah, There's no bailout because the moral hazard is eliminated. And that's a, and that's a really key incentive with the third party intermediaries. I totally agree. Um, I think like the next step of risk, and like this is all theory that we're getting into, but the next level of risk is like um you know, forms of control or appropriation. And uh so hypothetically, if we had a Bitcoin system emerge where there were third party intermediaries decentralized to in some of these major banking institutions like Wall Street over it, um would that be enough control or leverage when um you know some sort of sovereign entity could have enough access to those kind of private keys, which is a really complex and debatable topic. Um, but I think that uh the if you can create structures within companies that uh, perhaps you have like, you know, an idea of like a financial intermediary that has control over a lot of private keys, but the actual within that hierarchy of the company, the control of the keys is um, disaggregated. Um, so that if some sort of you know doomsday scenario were to occur, it'd be like, Oh, well, you know, we're gonna go talk to the CEO of this company's like, look, like you know, I'm just accepting like, you know, think about similar to like a franchise model or something. Like I'm just accepting like royalties. Like I don't actually have control over some of this stuff. These uh, smaller uh, decentralized units have control over everything. So like um, I think that there's innovation to be made there that can ultimately like really create a very, uh, a very strong structure. Um, but you know, I don't want to spend too much time on that.
0: Um, yeah. Well, uh, I mean, we haven't, I don't think we've seen the brunt of government attacks, but at the same time, the SEC can't even take down Ripple. so. Uh, totally, I don't think totally, it takes that much yeah. decentralization to, uh, to completely, uh, wreck the, uh, and outpace the current, um, the current, uh, you know, powers that be, but right. yeah, let's jump into, uh, let's jump into some of these, uh, properties of money and how Bitcoin competes against the, the competitors. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, so yeah, so Going back to my point, um, you know, having that apples to apples comparison, when you think about like what Bitcoin is versus, um, kind of like our base layer banking system and you compare that kind of property by property, we'd be like, okay, well, you know, it's the scarcest monetary asset in the world. And we have that range of, um, from Safe Dean's book where you kind of did the math and, uh, you know, gold's inflation rate has ranged between about one and a half to two and a half percent per year. And, um, since, uh, I can't remember how far exactly that goes back, for, but a very long time. Bitcoin's uh, Bitcoin's currently 1.8% with expectations, not expectations, but certainty that, that you know, that'll decline. And, um, and then I kind of go into the, you know, the high level question of like, okay, well, why can't somebody create like a more scarce uh, digital currency um, than Bitcoin? And, you know, the, of course, yeah, we can always just copy the code. But the key piece is Bitcoin is valuable because of its network. And you can't just copy a network, and uh, and that's kind of the key thing that people need to keep in mind is that the network is underlying this whole system, not the software is what makes it valuable. Um, and then you know, and then I get into durability, and it's like you know that's a quick one. It's just like okay, well, Bitcoin is as durable as the internet. Um, so that's that's a very uh, that's a very durable decentralized system, and um, and then acceptability that's the big one that that's the one area where bitcoin has not achieved superiority over prior forms of money and um and that's kind of going back to the point of what i think we need to you know what everybody is currently working really hard to make happen and uh we need to keep pushing for that and like you know i was reading through Taleb's paper this week and like that's that's the big thing is uh he, he keeps going back to this idea of like okay well you know money is um or bitcoin has been around for like 12 years and it isn't a medium of exchange and it isn't um a unit of account yet and um and it's just like yeah well like um i well, what's your timeline for these kind of things because honestly i don't know I'm, i i'd be surprised if anybody totally knows how long these things will take all we know is that it is earmarked because of all the other properties to be exceptional in that area at some point in time when that comes Um, is harder to say. But I I mean, his whole, his entire paper is like predicated on this idea that like, oh, it's been 12 years for like a new emerging monetary base layer asset and it hasn't got there. So it failed. And like, you know, I I think it's kind of ridiculous at this stage he's making or he's writing about something like that.
0: Um, Yeah, well, um, Bitcoiners hurt his feelings. So uh, Fragile Taleb has to poo-poo on Bitcoin. Uh, I I think he's going to have a lot of egg on his face and I had Lord uh, Fusi Tua, who is a lord from uh, the island nation of Tonga, um, and you know the way he sees it is like, okay, like in the West and a lot of you know, you know Europe and that kind of stuff, Bitcoin's been much more of a store of value. But like in developing nations, they're using it a lot more as a medium of exchange. Uh, maybe it's still difficult to use it use it as a unit of account because the world still operates on the dollar. But he's like, Bitcoin stacks in all those directions equally well. It just Mm -hmm. depends on like what situation you're putting it in. Like, yeah, it's better store of value. But yeah, if you have no other alternatives, it's also the best unit of uh, uh, medium of exchange. It's, uh, you know, it's technically easy to acquire. Um, You know, it's peer to peer It's censorship resistant. um, All these kind of things that um, a lot of folks, you know, in developing nations just don't have access to.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. It's definitely making progress in those areas and it's, and it's good to see, but I think that we are, you know, we're still a very long ways away from a lot of those things being achieved. And I think it's important to just, you know, when, when I discuss these aspects with people, I try to, you know, just stay humble and say like, look, um, here's what we know, here's what works really well. And, uh, and we're making a ton of progress there. And the growth in this network is outpacing the internet and everything is indicating that that is well, I can't say with certainty how anything's going to pan out. It is the best bet I think I'll ever get to make in my lifetime. So that that's yeah. uh, from a risk reward perspective. So like, yeah, definitely. that's that's kind of how I look at it.
0: Yeah, asymmetric risk to reward profile is uh, definitely a, a snooty way to say exactly what you just said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I would say that like uh, in general when when talking about like you know Bitcoin and you know where we're at in in its journey, um, you know, I only have one kind of criticism to say about phrasing it as acceptability. And just, I don't think that's acceptability that makes sense. I think it's more of a demandability. Like do people value Bitcoin, and are they demanding it for their services? Like, Mm -hmm. I don't think it's going to come from people like, I need to pay you in Bitcoin. We already know that there's no momentum there. Bitcoin's better money. People don't want to spend it if they can avoid that, right? I think it's Mm -hmm. going to come from like, I demand better money from my services. uh, And that's really like, it's going to come from people who want to save and accept Bitcoin Mm -hmm. uh, more than it's going to come from people who are like, fine, I'll take Bitcoin because there's all this market share that I don't have access to. Uh, So Mm -hmm. uh, maybe just a slightly different framework.
1: Yeah. And when you start to get into monetary properties, it uh, some things get a little confusing as to like what perspective you want to think about all of them from. But it's like, OK, like there is there is a degree of acceptability for reasons that you're talking about. Um, and it's it, and it's it's not just a degree. It's pretty significant. Um but if I were to, and then you have to say like, okay, well, how do we define acceptability? At what point is it considered a medium of exchange? Because it can be a medium of exchange without being a unit of account. And, um, that, so like, it's a gray area in between there, which is another point that I kind of hit on. That's what like, strength is. Right, 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 right. Yeah, 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 exactly. So like it. A lot of these things are kind of, these are qualitative assessments. There's no like hard line in the sand where you can be like, okay, here's what I know. But if you do know a significant difference between things uh, from the perspective of each property, then you'd be like, okay, well, this, you know, this one's obviously better. Um, uh, So it's like, you know, you can't directly quantify all of it or measure all of it, but you know, when you see it and um, with the acceptability piece, it's like, okay, well, what is full acceptability? It's like technically full acceptability is, Everybody in the world accepts Bitcoin at any given point in time. It's the most saleable good. And um, that, you know, we're, we're a long ways away from 100%. But like, what's the critical mass necessary for it to be considered, you know, the most acceptable? Um, it, you know, it gets a little gray. But in any event, it needs more acceptability. Um, and and we're working on that. and It's going really well.
0: Yeah, I mean, I would definitely say it's going really well. I think El Salvador came a lot faster than most Bitcoiners would think.
1: Unreal. Uh, and
0: yeah. yeah, I mean, I would say personally, as a Bitcoiner, most hardcore Bitcoiners are bears. So I think it's going to yeah. come a lot faster than most yeah. say, even you, you know, you're trying to stay humble. But man, I, I, I personally think like by 2025, Bitcoin is a massive macro geopolitical force. And by, 20, by 2030, like... full full, uh full global monetary um alternative system if not the just the de facto system
1: dude you got me thinking about all the lambos by 2025
0: dude i mean fuck lambos just uh, (laughs) yeah maybe maybe 2025 is for the citadels and then uh uh, 2030 Mm. is um is for uh hopefully back to uh back to sanity (laughs)
1: Yeah, well, that, that's a funny thing is like, I feel like even even people who like think they want to spend their Bitcoin on a Lambo, it's just like, you don't know yourself well enough because you don't know the incentives that it puts within you. And by the time you actually get there, you probably won't do it unless you're an idiot.
0: But like, <laughs> So at Bitcoin 2021, we, uh, SportsBet.io and Bitcoin 2021 gave away a Lambo
1: and yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: the winner had an option of accepting a Lambo or taking the value of a Lambo in Bitcoin. And the pleb that won took Bitcoin. Oh, hell so the yeah. That, won that's easy. several, several Bitcoin, uh, <laughs> Bitcoin 2021. Uh, that's so sweet. sports bet got the Lambo back.
1: <laughs> yeah, dude, I, you know, I saw the Lambo um, and I, I, you know, no shade, but not, not the best Lambo. If it was, if it was like a 2003 lime green Murcielago, then I might have been tempted, but, you know. I'm more of the OG Lambo type.
0: You know, I, I don't even know enough about Lambos to care. And <laughs> if I had one, I was not, I could not have one because obviously yeah, I worked for the company putting on the conference, but <laughs> I would have taken the Bitcoin too.
1: Yeah, I would have taken the Bitcoin for sure. Well, uh, all right,
0: Eric. Well, dude, um, thanks for coming on to the podcast, breaking all this stuff down. Uh, this was a lot of fun. Uh, and, you know, I can think of a ton of people in my life that need to read your articles you know they're stacking you know they kind of get it they kind of don't you know i feel like this is really like puts a, a nice solid picture together of like you know why bitcoin is elite uh why bitcoin is important and you know how it achieves what it achieves
1: yeah yeah it's a. Uh, you know i think it's it's the best framework that uh you know, it's the framework that ultimately got me there that I think, like, especially if you have a financial background, like, it's it's a good way to start with all this and uh, give you a really, really tangible way of thinking about Bitcoin. Um, yeah, dude. Thanks for having me on. It was a blast.
0: Eric, where can people find you, man?
1: Uh, you guys can find me on Twitter. That's Eric, E-R-I-C, Yakes, Y-A-K-E-S. Um, yeah. Find me on Twitter. Pretty much everything's linked on there. Uh, I've got, my book is on Amazon. That's the seventh property. Um, you can just search that. Um, and yeah, my website's linked to my Twitter. So come check me out. Send me a DM. Um, let, let's talk. I'm, I'm, if you didn't pick up on it, I'm pretty interested about financial services in this industry. So I'm trying to meet people who are also interested in, you know, forwarding a lot of those goals. So hit me up about that too. But
0: yeah. Fantastic. Well, Eric, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much for contributing to Bitcoin Magazine. It means a lot to have, you know, such an articulate uh member of our contributor community. So, uh, I appreciate it. And uh in terms of Bitcoin Magazine, you all can follow us at Bitcoin Magazine. Uh, you can check out the website bitcoinmagazine.com. Uh dropping a little hint here, but um you know, we're working on a physical product soon as well, so I know Bitcoiners love collectibles and, uh, you know, we're bringing back the physical Bitcoin magazine finally after years of uh, uh, years of kind of delay in that department. But keep an eye out for that. Follow me at CK underscore Snarks. Five star reviews. You all know the drill. Catch you later. Peace. A quick reminder that all of the content in this episode is for informational and entertainment purposes only. You should not construe the information as legal, tax, investment, financial, or any other advice. Nothing contained in this presentation constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, or offer by BTC Media, the Let's Talk Bitcoin Podcast Network, or any third-party service provider to buy or sell securities or any other financial instruments. Do your own research.